Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey there, everybody. Today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Tweaked Audio makes earbuds and headphones. If you need earbuds or headphones or both, go to tweakedaudio.com. Enter the promo code other people, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L, and get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. Tweaked audio. These are earbuds. These are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, big, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Okay. Just one person at just one time. Right, 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 right. Hey, everybody, how's it going? I'm Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. It's nice to be talking with you or talking to you. My guest today is Natasha Dion. Her debut novel is called Grace. It's available now from Counterpoint Press, and uh, she and I will be in conversation momentarily. Uh, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I am uh, very tired. I haven't slept well the last two nights. My kids have been getting us up. If it's not one, it's the other. So it's just been a couple of rough nights of like two and three hours of sleep. So with this in mind, I thought that today uh, for the monologue, I would share with you what I go through sometimes in trying to create a monologue. This is something that I've never done, which is sort of surprising. I've never shared with you the behind the scenes difficulties of putting together an other people podcast monologue. So here you go. These are some outtakes from uh, just a little bit ago, me trying to put uh, a string of thoughts together, say something coherent at the top of the show, make a monologue, which uh, I should mention is something that a solid majority of my listeners want me to do. I've actually taken polls on this. I've wondered, do you guys really want me to do monologues at the top of the show? And uh, when I do these polls, a solid 70% of people say yes, goading me along. And this is what I sometimes go through, especially when I haven't been sleeping, trying to deliver a quality product. So here are some outtakes from a failed other people monologue. I'm that guy. I'm the guy drinking sparkling water, looking at the planet, thinking about physics and Buddhism. 
I'm recording this on Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. I've had sex 11 times today. That's why I need so much sparkling water. I think you're going to enjoy this. I'm just going to go out on a limb and speculate about your level of enjoyment. Do you hear that? That's a squirrel. I'm surrounded by wildlife. If you can picture that. We have lions that live in Los Angeles. People like to think of Los Angeles as a a megalopolis, an urban hellhole. There are mountain lions in Los Angeles, in the mountains, terrorizing uh, alpacas. Natasha (laughs) Dionne... Natasha Dion is my guest. Should I keep this? See, this is like right now in my head, I'm like, I should delete this and start over. Or do I just let this roll? Do we just ride this wave together? Are you guys enjoying this? Am I connecting with you on a human level? <clears throat> Natasha Dion is my guest. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So there you have it, folks. Those are some outtakes from a failed Other People podcast monologue. Just to give you guys a hint of what I go through. A whisper of the challenges I face. Natasha Dion is the guest today. Her debut novel is called Grace. It is available now from Counterpoint Press. I had a great time talking with her. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy this podcast presentation. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Natasha Dion. Yeah, I sort of wrote between things, you know. I always have been a writer, and it was easy for me to just say, I'll just write this chapter. And not easy, the writing is not easy, but, you know, just deciding, I can just do this, do this a little bit, a little bit, and then pretty soon... The book was done, and I say pretty soon. It was like seven years. Seven years. Yeah. Did you have like a disciplined schedule of work, or did you just do it when you could? I did it when I could, except for the residencies, you know, like VCCA, which was two weeks, bread loaf, you know, things like that. But generally, I just wrote bet- while I was waiting for things, like waiting to pick up my daughter or my son or at the doctor's office or something occurs to me. I'm, you know, using the notes section of my phone, and that's how it came about. And so like you're piecing it together, you're taking a note that you wrote on your phone and sending it to yourself and putting it into a yeah. work, all that. <laughs> yeah. And you were able to hold the whole thing to, because like, this is not a, uh, a simple story. I mean, you're dealing with history, you're dealing with uh, multiple storylines. I mean, like, mm-hmm. how did you hold it all together? I didn't, I didn't know what was good. There's no way. I don't know. Do people say that they hold the whole novel in there? I would have never been able to hold it all together. The so, whole novel. So what, okay. But I mean, you, so you didn't have like a, um, the full thing outlined. Oh yes. You well, did. okay. So when I first wrote it, it was a, um, it was a screenplay cause I had this vision of the opening scene. I don't know. Do they call, I don't know whether to call it a vision or a dream, but I was walking down the hallway with my son and all of a sudden it was nighttime. I saw this woman running. She had on a yellow dress that had blood on it. There was the moon. I knew I was in the woods, and I knew it was Alabama, where my family was from. And then it became the opening of the novel. 
And then I, I remember thinking at the time, because you I didn't you, never... immediately, you immediately told your son. <laughs> yeah, I said, hey, baby, this is what... <laughs> you tell you a bedtime story. <laughs> no, he was like two months old at oh, the time. Okay. So, no, it was scary. I thought I was still asleep. I thought I just imagined having, you know, gotten up, gotten my son. I just thought I was still asleep. It was confusing. Was it the middle of the night? No, it was daytime. Oh, it was. So that's why it was, you know, I'm looking around and it was freaky and I felt crazy and I was like, oh, I must still be asleep. That's why I just saw that. And then I realized that I was still awake and I gave my son to my husband who was sitting on the sofa and then I said, I have to write down what I just saw and I wrote the opening. What do you think that was? I don't know. I don't know. Like people will suggest to me what it is, what it was. I don't I don't have any, I don't, I don't have any background in anything like that. I'm not interested in like, oh, what is this? But all I describe it as is a dream, a daydream or a vision. I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. Are you into like the paranormal? Like, do you have, you put any credence in that stuff? No, I mean, I know, I think it exists. I think people believe it exists. I think ghosts can exist. I mean, the whole story is a ghost story. But it's really examining what I thought it would be like if it were true. You know, my back, I'm just, I'm Christian, so we don't have like ghosts or, you know, there's visions that people have, but I don't know what that looks like or what that means. I never say, I I always, I've I've talked about this before, but like, I want to see a ghost. I never see ghosts. I don't want to see a ghost. I'm like. A nice, a nice ghost. (laughs) No. A friendly ghost. I don't want to see like a, I don't want to see like a demon, but I, I just something, you know, like all these, these people have these experiences of the paranormal that seem so convincing to them and they can, you know, convince me even at times, but I never get any of that. I know. I remember my friend Roxanne and I, when we were little, we were probably, let's say little, we were probably 10 or 11 and we were sitting at her house one day and we thought we would summon her grandma. Right. And <laughs> we did like this, make, we just made up a seance and we were there at her house by ourselves, and I remember that something dropped in the other room, and then we were like, no, go into the light, Grandma. Go into the light. <laughs> so it was like, don't. Come. We don't want to see you. We were just kidding. <laughs> it's very pol- It's like very poltergeist. Yeah. So uh, you say that you your family's from Alabama. Yes. Did you, where were you raised? Los Angeles. So oh. I was born in LA, West Adams district, La Brea and Adams, uh-huh. um, till I was about nine. And then we moved to Santa Clarita. Okay. It's the first time I'd been out of the city. It was a different world. And? And it was freaky. It was freaky. Where is Santa Clarita? Santa Clarita is like east? It's like 30 miles north. North. Like on the way to San Francisco. I've lived here for like, you know, God, what is it? 16 years? And you've never been to Santa Clarita? I probably have. So, Magic it, Mountain? Yeah. Ah? Okay. Yeah. You've been there? Yeah. Yeah, see? That's my exit. What? That's it, right there. <laughs> <laughs> you grew up going to Magic Mountain? Yeah, I worked there. Everybody works there. That's how you do it yeah. when you're like a kid growing up in Santa Clarita. Yeah, 16 years old. You got it. And so, but that's like more of a suburban existence. Yes. Different. It was the first time I had been around a non-diverse group. So like my best friend growing up was Korean and my other best friend was black. And then everybody was just a mix of, of different cultures and and ethnic races. And so moving out there, it was it was scary for me. What's out there? Just white people? Yeah, at that time. It was just, <laughs> we were the only, my brother and I were the only black kids in our school. No, there was one other. There was, that was it. And I had never been in that kind of environment. And when we first moved out there, 
Our car was surrounded by police officers or deputy sheriffs at the gas station who thought my father had robbed something. So it was pretty scary. And he's yeah. a sheriff. He, he was starting his first day of work that Monday. This was a Sunday. He's a sheriff. Your dad was a sheriff? Yeah. My God. Yeah. So it was pretty scary. That's what precipitated the move? No, we were ex- escaping like the drugs that were coming into to LA at that time it was the eighties. Mm. We were talking about NWA before, you know, Yeah. but just that whole environment, my father was trying to make us safe and, and that's how we were greeted. Like, hello, that's hello, not good. black people. What did, what did they say? How did it resolve itself? Um, I only remember bits and pieces of it. I was sitting in the back seat with my brother and my sister, my brother. So I was, no, I was actually eight. My brother was not nine and my sister's four years younger than me. So I don't know if she was young, but she was laying on me. And I remember looking out of the window and my father was standing there and he's trying to explain to them, you know, I'm your I, new boss. I, I'm, I know, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm an officer too. I'm like, you know, I'm like, and he's talking, and they're telling him to get on the ground and he wouldn't get on the ground. And he was trying to talk to them or like talk his way out of it. And I remember just being terrified because all their guns are pointed and I'm like sitting they right there. They had guns drawn. Oh yeah, totally. And so it was scary. And then, um, and then I remember we were getting gas. So the gas thing, you know how it pops when it 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 clicked and then it was just, it was scary. And I remember my mom, she was kind of sitting forward with her hands on the dash and she just wasn't moving. And I was just watching. And then, um, he got on the ground eventually. And then that was the end of it. So this is an interesting question. Is your father still with us? Yes. That's like an interesting question uh, that it brings to mind is, is what's it, you know, what's it, we all know that there's a big problem with police and the African-American community in this country, but what's it like to be a, a black police officer to have that perspective, you know, cause like there are, there are many of them and they're out there and they're trying to do their jobs. And that seems like a strange place to exist in between the two, um, what's the word for it? perspectives, I guess. Right. Right. You know, I think that's true for any, probably any successful black person in any industry too, but especially police officers. Like I was reading that, what's his name? Nick Cannon just quit, you know, America's got talent because he's struggling between, you know, being a voice of the people and also pleasing, you know, another community, another world, the money and all that other I don't know. I think we often find ourselves in that position. And I was recently at the NAACP Image Awards. And when they mentioned Steve Harvey's name, it just got quiet in the room because, you know, he recently met Donald Trump. And then there's some backlash to that. I think there's always a push and pull. And it's no different for them. Is it probably it's probably even more difficult for my father. He would have to tell that story. But he was often he would be off. Often he would be angry, like he had to go to work that Monday and it, he had a lot of stress at work that I didn't understand at that time. I didn't know what it meant. Did he see these guys at work? I mean, yeah, he saw them the next day, like because they thought he—they told him he—they thought he was a robbery suspect that day, and then it turns out that there was no robbery nearby. Like we had a chair in the back, and I think a box of kicks and like a painted picture of Jesus, you know, with a panther or something—something something very, you know, I don't know. But they, Jesus with a panther? Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> it was, <laughs> you know, on the velvet background. I don't know, but it was like, it was like the 90s, 80s, 90s. So it was like, it's a different world, but it was scary. But they thought that was, 
you know, property of someone else. We were in our Volvo. We always had a Volvo. It was a station wagon. Safe cars. Safe cars. It's a it's safe family car. Safe for somebody, not for us. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> wow. Yeah, it's wow. freaky. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So you grow up uh, in Santa Clarita. Yeah. You're one of the only African-American students in your school. Yeah. Um, did you wind up thriving? Was it always weird? Yes. <laughs> no, but... Yes and yes, or just one yes? It, it was... I ended up thriving anyway because I had great teachers. Like, I had some amazing teachers. Um, Mr. Getzkow was a teacher who thought that I was... He was the first one who said that I was intelligent. He thought I was intelligent. He put me in special programs, you know, so when I went into junior high school... I was at very, you know, advanced classes and very advanced classes where my brother really struggled. So they had to hold him back a year. Um, and then we were like in fifth and sixth grade together and he sat in front of me. But it was difficult. But I also have friends like my friend Amy, who was my first friend, you know, who wasn't afraid to talk to me. I wasn't weird. Yes, she wanted to touch my hair, but it wasn't. <laughs> I was like, that's a small price to pay. Okay, go ahead. Touch my braids. I was like, <laughs> I was like, why is that a thing? I don't know. But yeah. So. And, and, and at what age did you start to write? Pro ever since I can remember. I used to make board games for my sister and my brother. And like Monopoly and things like that. But I would make up my own rules. So I would write little short stories about the board and about the rules. And, and I would always tell, we would sleep in the same room. So I would always tell her stories that would scare her or tell her stories to help her go to sleep. Yeah, so I've always been a storyteller that way. And then when you went to college, you studied what? communication <laughs> well, that makes sense though like it makes sense as far as your legal legal uh, profession goes and also i mean that's not being decided <laughs> yeah, but i mean it's a broad it seems like a broad right. degree that could be applied yeah i didn't know what i wanted to do i like to write but it wasn't really a viable option my family was from alabama and they come to you know escaping all that terrorism in the south which is a different kind of terrorism but people don't think of it that way and they came to L.A. for a better life. And it wasn't like I was going to become an artist and just start writing and, or drawing. or It wasn't an option. So it was, like, it was very much like an immigrant experience, I guess. Um, so I was... It really is different. My, my family's from the South. Like, down there is, is different. 
Yeah, it's different. <laughs> you go back to Alabama like as a kid? Yeah, I used to go every summer. So one of the settings in my book is based on the town where my where my family was, Tallahassee, Alabama, East Tallahassee, Alabama. West is the white side, east is more the black side, and um and that's where the story is based. So they and that's where when we were free, my family was free from slavery, we were there in East Tallahassee, and we never left till my parents came out. Wow. What prompted they just wanted a, a change. Yeah. They packed up and came to Los Angeles. Yeah. Why Los Angeles? Because my aunt had just had just left that summer, you know, before and they wanted and they had some place to go. Really it's like an immigrant experience. Like I know someone in America or Spain or wherever. It was very much like that. And, you know, my father looked for work for a long time, um, and then became a LA County sheriff. Sheriff's deputy. <laughs> oh, wow. he, he prote- I can imagine he was probably protective. Oh, yeah. Very protective and, you know, but dealing with his own demons and we learned how to shoot er- early on, things like that. He really? Was just, yeah. You know how to shoot? Yeah. I know you packing right now? Let's no, go. I'm not. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Peace. <laughs> oh, man. So, and you still have family back in Alabama? Yeah. Most of my family is is there that's so related to my mom alabama and now some have moved to atlanta we got brave yeah yeah like two hours away so when you think about this vision that you had that led to the writing of your book and you think about your own family history you're not thinking like there's somebody in my family like there's nobody in your family's past whose story mirrors this like in a you don't have any family lore that led to this no 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 not that i know of that's why i don't People will ask me that, you know, say, you know, what happened? That would be the Hollywood version. Yeah, like, no, I wish I could say that. I wish I had, like, something, because it would make me feel better, you know, to say that I'm not crazy. I mean, because that's the alternative. If it's not a ghost or it's not a vision or something that we've already identified, maybe I'm I'm off, you know, which (laughs) is, there's nothing wrong with that. I'll live it, whatever. I'll own it. But I would like to know. But no, there's nothing like that. My grandmother... The closest thing is my grandmother had um, Alzheimer's, and when she was 90, she moved. My mom moved her from East Tallahassee, Alabama, to live with us. So she spent the last few years of her life with us. And because of the Alzheimer's, um, she would sometimes talk to herself as if, like, living in a memory. And she would, you know, she we would be sitting at the table, and she would be talking to things that weren't there and you know, like casting her food on the floor to feed dogs that aren't there, you know, but Alzheimer's is, it's scary, but I would hear her talk and the way that she was and the way, you know, and I would hear the cadences in her voice and, you know. And maybe and the thing too, is that people who have uh, Alzheimer's, like they can come back for like a brief moment. Yeah. Like there can be flashes of their old selves. Mm-hmm. My grandmother had, de- I mean, is dementia the same thing as Alzheimer's or the different? I like, don't know. I don't know. Yeah. You know, similar at least. Yeah, but probably. every once in a while she would come, you know, she would kind of come back and look at you and mm-hmm. register and then it would be gone again. Yeah. But she would, she would come back. She, you know, she would come back and, I, and she would always smile. She was happy. You know, that's what I remember her always smiling. So, yeah. yeah. so uh, you get your communications degree. Where'd you go to school? Um, Cal State Long Beach. All right. Then Trinity Law School, and then UC Riverside, Palm Desert for my MFA. Got your MFA. Yeah, got it. I did. While you were practicing law. While I was practicing law. And and did it help you? Tremendously, yeah, I think. 
I say tremendously not because it helped me to be able to talk about writing, you know, in a way that I hadn't considered before. It helped me to identify things like, you know, point of view and, you know, why we do the different things that we do. You know, you read so many books, other people's books, and then you write your your own book. But I think it helped. And also community. I think the most valuable part of the MFA program was the community. Because I ended up from there, I started my own reading series, Dirty Laundry, and was able to do that with the people that I grew to love and became family to me. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, that's a good, I mean, I think that's one of the, the functions that it performed for me too, because, uh, otherwise, you know, how do you get to know people? You can get to know them virtually yeah. on the online, but it's not the same. And you went to SC, right? I went to SC. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it was nice to kind of a couple times a week go in and sit down in a room with other crazy people. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that was fun. I found my tribe. <laughs> yeah. Here you people are. My people. I love you. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, I was just at a uh, birthday party this past weekend for one of my old classmates. Oh. We met on the first day of graduate school for both of us, walking into the same class. We've been friends ever since. Wow. How long How long has that been? That was 2002, I think. So it's been a long time. Best friendships. Best, <laughs> they, we all understand. We're like, oh, okay. So, so do, <laughs> do you have a, a novel in the drawer? Like, did you write a bad book or two before you wrote uh, when they got published? Or is this it? This is it. Wow. This is it. It's right I out of the box. Right out the box. Starred reviews. No, <laughs> I know. It's wild. I didn't expect that. You know, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect, which is probably the best case scenario. Like, I didn't have friends who had done this or anything like, you know, I didn't know what to expect. And I think it made it so that I could look at everything with wonder. Did you, did you, did it feel good when you were writing it? Like, you, were you thinking to yourself, I got something here? Or were... Were you just sort of, I don't know what this is, but I'll give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I remember wanting, first when I had the vision, I wanted to find out what it was about. Like, why am I writing this story? But I felt like it was given to me. I don't know how else to explain that other than saying I felt like it was a story that was given to me and I had to write it and then carry it beyond some imaginary finish line. But hmm. I didn't know what that was or what that meant. I'd never written a novel before. So I, the first thing I did was I started, you know, I wrote it out as a screenplay and then it won like all these awards. So I thought, oh, all I have to do is copy and paste the screenplay, add a little bit of background and now I have a novel. And it was so bad. It was so horrible. I was like, I don't even want to read this. Yeah. <laughs> so I enrolled in at the UCLA extension program and I just took a class. I was like, okay, I'm just going to figure out how to write scene one of this thing. What happened that day to make it real. And then it just sort of went like that. And you had a sense from the, the moment that you had this vision of this woman in a yellow dress covered in blood running mm -hmm. that you had been given an entire story. Yes. I felt like I was given her story, but it was when another friend of our family died that I knew what the rest of the story, that it included her too. It, there was a character, her name is Cynthia in the book and I based a character on her. And then I knew once she passed away in real life, I knew that she was part of the story. And that didn't come until, you know, maybe a year after. Yeah. And you had written a full screenplay mm -hmm. that you said won some awards. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you mean? Like screenplay contest? Yeah, like screenplay, like Beverly Hills Film Festival and 
Charleston and, you know, just around. It, they were big deals to me because sure. I was like, everyone I entered, I won, you know, the La Femme. Um, but there were like eight total, but I didn't know what I was doing. I just thought I was done with the story so I can move on because you want to just finish it and get up and go. And then it was about to be optioned and I was sitting in the meeting. They probably should have never invited me, but it was it was destiny. I'm sitting in the room. I'm like, no, that's not how it goes. That's not how it goes. This is how it goes. This is not how it goes. And then it occurred to me that I, I need to write the story or tell the story that I was given to honor the story for whatever reason it was given to me. And I felt like I needed to do that. And it was the first time anything like that had happened to me. So, so I just wanted to finish it. So what happened? To the, did you blow up the, the film deal by saying all that? Yes. You did. <laughs> because I, I decided not to option it. I didn't want, I, I needed to keep it and I needed to finish it. And I thought I could finish it, you know, I'll be done in six months. The screenplay only took me six months. I'll be done with this now. And, no. and then I thought after my first class, I'll be done with it. And then it was like, no. And then the next class, no. I was still on chapter three or something like that of 50, what would be 50 chapters. Oh. Um, it's a lot of work writing a book. It is. It is. And I didn't know, but had I known, maybe I wouldn't have. It's like having a baby, you know? If <laughs> Don't anybody tell, tell if you knew like what would happen after, you know, all you do is live the moment, like, oh look, I'm pregnant, and then everything just goes pear shaped after that. Yeah. If you knew, you'd be like, Okay, the next baby, we need to plan this out. We need to <laughs> Yeah. If there's a third baby, no, I don't want to. Yeah. Something like, yeah, there's, there's gotta be something like biological uh, happening. Like we're programmed to sort of not want to know or something in order to make sure the species continues. Yeah. Or not believe it when people tell you, right? you know, so it's the same with the book. That's what happened to me. I was like, ah. did you, did you, cause like, it strikes me that from a plotting standpoint, writing a screenplay version first functions as a kind of outlining process. Mm. Once you wrote the screenplay, and then decided that you wanted to novelize it. Did the novel change uh, markedly from the screenplay? Did you make big changes or was it basically all there? Um, it was basically all there, but you know, it, even with the outline, it changes as you discover new things or something doesn't make sense. All the way down to the moment where it was about to go to galleys. I was like, no, there's so many things wrong here at the ending, you know? Um, or this chapter doesn't need to be here. And so you're always changing it. That's, that sounds stressful. All the way. It's, you're almost ready for galleys and it's like, I got to get rid of a chapter. I know. I know. <laughs> I, I think I got rid of three chapters and then changed the ending. Cause it didn't make sense. Like this one part. Isn't it weird how you can spend this much time? You wrote a screenplay version. Mm -hmm. You spent seven years in this book. Mm -hmm. You sell the book. <laughs> you get almost to the point of publication and there's still blind spots. Right. That, that's one of the freakiest things for me about a book. Because like you, I mean, you've read your book hundreds of times. Yep. How, can, how can it possibly be? Because I have the same exact experience. How could I miss? And a lot of times the things that you've missed in retrospect seem very clear and obvious. I know. Right? It's like, how in God's name did I read this thing 400 times and miss this? <laughs> that's the beauty too of like having a reading series. And I say like a lot. I'm sorry. That's I just, right. I can't, it's my Valley girl. I was going to say. Uh, inner Valley it's girl. It's the magic leaves. mountain in you. Yeah, that's what <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah, like when people are, <laughs> there it goes again. <laughs> When people are <laughs> reading on the stage, even then you see their reader, their reader copy and every th sentences are lined out. Words are like, so you're still editing even 
as you're traveling with your finished book. You I know? found I, I found in doing readings that a lot of times I will make on the fly corrections. Do you hear that, by the way? I do. Those are squirrels running on the roof of those the garage. Are, those are big squirrels. I think they're squirrels. They could they, be a cat. They could be bears. I yeah, don't know. It happens every day, oh, multiple right. times. Okay. Uh, but I was just going to say that like, I will sometimes uh, be doing a reading and I'll skip a line or skip a word or, you know, it's like you're making editorial corrections on the fly as you read. Yep. So it just never ends. No, At some doesn't. point you just stop. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like based on a critical response that you chose a good, a good place to, to stop. Like people, the book has landed. It's re- people responding well. Yeah. Does that feel crazy. good? It feels great. It yeah. feels great. I can't believe it. I you, can't, I can't. It's like it's happening to someone else. You read all the reviews? No. I read the ones that, not because I don't appreciate that they've done it, um, but there's so much. I feel so overwhelmed. That's It's been eight months since the book came out. I just feel overwhelmed. I remember I was at Winter Institute, you know, where they sell books, booksellers, and they handed me my galley. And I had just gotten there from the airport and I just broke down. I mean, ugly cry. I'm sitting at this table with all these, but it was just ugly. And I'm just, so I just, I'm just emotionally, you know, I'm going to read them one day and I'll read the ones that my editor sends me like New York times. I was excited. Kirkus, um, and a lot of them, but some of them, I just don't, it's so much, it's so much emotion. Yeah. Yeah. It's very personal. Like, even if your book isn't, I mean, this is obviously isn't about your life experience, but, um, it's a deeply personal story to you. Uh, And I think if you say, you know, if you spend enough time to write a book, it inevitably becomes that, uh, or what you would think, I guess the best books do. That's the way it would seem to me. Maybe not the next book. Maybe I'll be more distant, but this one, and then symbolically it came out on June 14th. My daughter's birthday is June. Well, no, my son's birthday is June 15th and my daughter's is the 16th. So it was like 14th, 15th and 16th. So it just felt like another child. So if people have bad things, you know, I don't want to see that. June 14th also happens to be flag day. Oh, ah, see (laughs) what was, that's the real meaning right there. That's it. Oh my God. I'm seeing patterns here. Uh, Right. So am I. (laughs) (laughs) My flag patterns, just patterns. So, uh, you like in the aftermath of this, like, are you uh, galvanized? Do you want to write more books? Are you working on something? I'm working on a new book now huh? that I'm really excited about. Um, another historical cause I like history. Um, and I like the connections to the present. So it's going to be something that's, what do you mean? The connections to the present? Um, so like in, in grace, I write about, you know, the slavery and, and but not slavery and that I felt that it was ever just another slave narrative. It's about women who survived and um and I was actually reading a review recently, this was just yesterday, of someone who was talking about Colson Whitehead's book and and Yah Jesse's book and Grace and just sort of how they're all similar and how could you plan, you know. Yeah, they, 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 you that, that is strange that they all came out roughly within the same within the same year. Yeah. And this was something that, you know, I know I was working on it, you know, t- t- 10 years ago it came out, you know, but in saying that the way that we protest and the way that we rebel is through human connection. And that's what she saw in grace. And I thought that was perfect because that's what I feel about now, today, today's atmosphere that is going to take us coming together as people, as human beings. And I don't think that change or that 
humanity was ever based around laws or a presidency. I think it's people. Yeah. I mean, change comes from the bottom up. I mm-hmm. believe that. I mean, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, do you feel like we're getting, I mean, how do you, how do you make sense of this moment? It's very depressing to me. And I feel, it feels like backsliding, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, Oh, let's not go backwards. Right. Let's not regress. We were, you know, we weren't perfect the last eight years, but I feel like we were pointed in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Generally. You agree, right. disagree? No, I, I agree, but I see this moment over time. I mean, it was devastating to me initially. My daughter was devastated, my family. You know, but I think we have this opportunity where we're, we're through president, through the new president, we're exposing something that's always been there. It ha- It's not like all of a sudden he caused it. This was already there. So it's like the sutures have blown open. Yeah. And now the pus is coming out and we have an opportunity to deal with it directly and treat it and treat the problem. How we decide to treat the problem, whether we remain aggressive in the way that we treat it or or something else is, is up to us. But I still think that we have an extraordinary opportunity and we're in the driver's seat, not the way that we were you know, under President Obama, who was able to push back a lot of that. And, you know, he was literally, you know, he was a wall for many of us, you know, like a parent would be for a child, like, you don't need to see this. And now it's just blown open and we have a choice to deal with it or or not. But I'm I'm happy in one way, in one sense, that it's exposing something that people of color have always known, women have always known, you know. But now everybody has to see it. And now it's, what are you going to do now that you see it? Yeah. What yeah. what should people do? I think it's connection. I think it's human connection. I think it's listening to people, especially people that don't agree with you, and finding what that, what that true thing is, what that humanity is in those moments. I don't... And we... But right now we're angry. You know, you have to go through your stages of grief. Yeah. We are not even at a point, many of us, where we can say, let's have a conversation. They go low, we get rabies. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think I think we we can actually deal with each other. You know, the, the cards are on the table. Well, that's true. I mean, and the thing, too, that strikes me is, and this speaks to your book, is that this country has such a complicated karmic situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has never really been fully dealt with, Uh, you know, um, going back to the, um, stealing of land from native Americans, the slaughter of native Americans to slavery. Like we've never really dealt with that. No. And how do you fully deal? You know, do we do, um, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? You pay reparations. Like that makes some sense to me. There was a big, was it, uh, and I'm going to screw this up. Ta-Nehisi Coates. Uh-huh. Is that right? Right. Right. Is that the right, right pronunciation? Uh, yeah. Ta-Nehisi. Yeah. yeah. So he wrote a big essay about how, um, you know, we should pay reparations as a way of suturing that wound, making things right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can argue one side or the other on that, but at least it's a big gesture to say, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and to say this legacy is screwed up. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like definitely. it's like, cause absent that, what else is, what else is there? We, you can see, you know, I don't know. Talk is cheap. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's free to say, Oh, that was a mess, but it wasn't me, mm-hmm. you know? And we, you know, from having gone back to Alabama and you know, that especially in the South, it's not like things are all better <laughs> No, and, and not even in Los Angeles or in, you know, on the, in these coastal cities where things are supposedly more tolerant. There's still plenty of issues to be dealt with here. You know that. So yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's like, 
it's great that it's out in the open. What are we going to do about it? And then like, how do we really, as a country and as a uh, population reconcile with the grimness of the past? You know, mm-hmm. it's not an easy yeah. answer. <laughs> it's not, but at the same time, if you, you know, talking to people of color, like nothing has really changed for us, you know, in, in moving forward, like we've seen this, but nobody's believed, you know, oh, you guys, well, clearly he moved. That's why that man was shot because he moved or, you know, when Trayvon Martin was killed or in all, and for them, it's always not guilty, not guilty, not guilty all the time. This is since I can remember the LA riots and, you know, all of that has always been us saying this is happening and everybody's saying, no, 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 no. Just calm down. He shouldn't have moved. He should. And then more people. And in that way, it saddens me that everybody is pulled, you know, can now see this thing that we've suffered with for so long. It saddens me, but it, but it also, you know, there's a relief in that we can move forward in this because America works on so many myths, you know, the myth of, I was reading the other day, a myth of unfettered democracy that we are, but then you'd have to ignore slavery. You'd have to ignore what we did to the Native Americans, how we've interned the Japanese or whatever. There's this Didn't myth. let women vote. Women, <laughs> right. There's, there's something that says, no, that's not true, but America is the dream anyway. So it's a myth. So now we have to say, okay, you know, it's not a myth anymore. Now let's look at, that's why I like in that way, I think that's the one positive. It's now. like a therapeutic moment. Yeah. But what are you, you know, going to But what's it going to lead to? You can't lie anymore. Bust it. You're on camera. Well, I was just going to say te- <laughs> technology has helped to um, bring this into uh, a clear light. Mm-hmm. Like tape doesn't lie. No. <laughs> you know, but, but prior, prior to that, it was one person's word against another, a person of color's word against a white officer's word. And, yeah. you know, and so in that media environment, it's not going to be friendly to people of color. But but there's have... also alternate facts, though. Even when you're looking at the alleged alternate facts, like when Eric Garner was choked to death, everybody watched that, and some people said, "Oh no, he, you know, th- yeah, that was a chokehold." But you know, if he wasn't so fat or he wasn't so he didn't have these heart problems, he wouldn't have. There's still like these these alter, and you're like, "No, how can you not see what I'm seeing?" It was the hardest thing when Rodney King was beaten. And I remember them showing it on TV. And it was my first office job in Encino. And I was the only black person in that office. And I remember everybody, we had a TV in the lunchroom. And we were all watching it. And I was like, wow, that's horrible. And I thought, clearly, everybody sees how horrible this man is being beaten. And then they just, I remember them staring into the TV. And I was kind of sitting back because I was so upset about it. And they said, see, he moved right here. Like they started pointing at the TV. See that his leg, his leg moved right. See his finger. And I was like mortified. And I, was, and I remember, look, I was only, I was 19. And I remember looking around just saying, seriously, are you kidding me? All of them. And there was like eight of us in that room, in the lunchroom. And none of them saw that this man had been beaten the way that he was. I was like, how is it that I'm the only one? There's like six this? police officers with billy clubs on yeah. one guy. No. They didn't see that. They did not. They saw him moving. And that's to me when I saw Eric Garner being choked to death and people were saying all these alternate facts. I couldn't, you know, I was like, I've seen this before. So for me, history goes like that. And that's why it was so interesting 
to talk about like the South and how we're repeating the same pattern again and again until we can break it. And now we're exposing more of it. So I have hope based on, you know, we're going somewhere else. People have seen it now. We need Beyonce to run for president. We do. Beyonce. She got to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> fix it, girl. Well, fix I mean, it. I've had, no. I've, I've, had uh, I've had conversations. I mean, everyone's sort of, especially in this weird political universe we live in now, it's like, we need to get Tom Hanks or we need Oprah or we need, <laughs> like, because you almost need somebody who's a celebrity already to run. It can't just be a politician. You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I can't, I can't believe that. I, I don't believe that. I think it's us. I think it's us. I think we have to stand in the gap for other people who can't. And I think it's on the ground. I don't think it's ever been in the hands of politicians or famous people. I think it's on the ground. I think, yeah, of course, Donald Trump was that. Um, and he represented something. But we have to admit also that he represented something that people gravitated toward. He represented the overlooked white population who felt like they weren't, they weren't that they were being ignored and they, well, they were right. They voted, they voted in a manner similar to uh, an entire block. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. as, a, as a minority block, yeah. like we're not represented and they sort of like coalesced around his candidacy. And But I what if they're right? What do you mean? What if, the, what if they're right about having been ignored? Well, that's the thing is that, I don't know, his candidacy was so all over the place and right. so riddled with uh, corruption and inconsistency and yep. bad behavior uh, but there was a lot of anger that he was channeling. And the thing that I keep coming back to in my head is that it strikes me as a kind of suicidal act. Mm. Like people are so desperate and so frustrated and so, um, pissed off at Washington and, you know, the political class and the financial elites, uh, that they finally were just like, fuck it. You know, a mm -hmm. lot of them anyway. I think yeah. so. And there's some of them who genuinely uh, have like racial animus and yeah. love that he seems to channel that. You know? Yeah, he has a lot of racists following him. You know, that's true. All that is true. But I also think back because, you know, for, from a strategy point of view, thinking what could have happened differently? What could have we, what could, you know, the, we have done differently to 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 understand the group of people who end up you know, it was a coup. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> that's the thing. There's a lot of... How did we miss that? There's, yeah, right. there's a lot of second guessing of, of you know, d democratic, uh, political... I mean, there's plenty to second guess, but it's mm -hmm. also like James Comey, Russian influence, mm -hmm. the dissemination of fake news on people's Facebook walls. Mm -hmm. Those are real issues. Yeah. You know, that's not just sour grapes. Yeah. Gerrymandering. And, uh, yeah. And so, and yeah, so gerrymandering. And then it's also... Um, I think, and this is something that's not necessarily as popular to talk about uh, on the left, but I don't, I don't think Hillary Clinton um, excited people, enough people in the way that Obama did, mm -hmm. you know, like his mm -hmm. coalition didn't come out in the same way. Mm -mm. Um, and, you know, she was a flawed candidate to a lot of people on the left, you know, the Bernie Sanders crowd and whatnot, like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. her social policies, um, her, you know, I don't know. Like I, I it's, yeah. it's hard People jump on that because I know there are a lot of people on the left who really loved, you know, loved her and love her. And I wanted her to be the president. But mm -hmm. um, I can also see criticisms of the Clintons as being valid. They're not super yeah. shiny. They, you know, they have their, I guess everybody does. But mm -hmm. after the Obamas, I feel like the Obamas in, in the context of, you know, elite American political life, that's about as good as it's going to get. 
Right. <laughs> like they're good people, yeah, yeah. smart people, elegant people, great family, not mm-hmm. a whiff of scandal. No. You no. know, and that wasn't the case when Bill Clinton was in office. No. Know? No. I guess Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter's pretty squeaky clean. He never I like Jimmy Carter. He never a dropped lot. a bomb. I still miss him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> He's a nice man. Yeah. In fact I just saw on Twitter uh, a picture of him and uh what Rosalind, his wife. Is that his wife's name? Back when they were like young and just married and he uh-huh. was like and, you know, just Oh, of, I saw that picture. He was yeah. a he was a handsome devil. Yeah, and he was and, so excited to be yeah. married, <laughs> like genuinely. I was like, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were cute. They were ador- yeah. an adorable couple. Yeah, I don't. I, I think that the only choice was Hillary Clinton, um, but I think as a woman, she was going to have to face all that misogyny anyway, yeah. like as women do. And and there's no. I don't think that she was. You know, people will say, "Oh, well, who's the?" You know, they they're both bad. No, actually, no. that's not true. I hate that's, that. Nothing frustrates that's me not, more. <laughs> there's, that's actually not true. You know, they're not both bad. You know, but there's well, they're not equal. No, it's not equal. Badness. Not even, not even. There's only one person qualified for the job. Yeah. No matter what side you're on, there's only one person. Um, but they had to tear her down, and there was a machine that was that was focused on doing that. And all they have to do is confuse you. It's like reasonable doubt. If you have a reasonable Reasonable doubt is not guilty, you know, hmm. so. Well, now here we are Yeah. in Hello. this mess. Hopefully it leads to good things. You know, like hopefully somehow we can like in the long view, we'll look back yeah. and say, this was the moment when the sutures blew open to yeah. use your, your very graphic. <laughs> 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 but I mean, that's it, you yeah. know, and it's yeah. exposes this ugly stuff and it brings it to the surface and it shows us who we are. And then we have to reconcile with that. Yeah. In a more honest way. Exactly. Exactly. We thought we were healing. We thought we were moving forward. But underneath that new skin, there's all this pus that we, you know, you squeeze it again. It's like, what? I thought it was getting better. And it's actually all infected down in there. If it brings up a good question, how, how will we know when things are better? Like, is there, like it's, there can't be like a finish line or mm. can there, like, is there a moment or a, a, a set of circumstances where we can say, we finally done it. <laughs> you know, like, like, you no, know, I don't, for me, it's the moment where we all respect one another, you know, mm-hmm. whatever our choices and we could be just respectful human beings and gracious. We're not there yet in our anger, in our bitterness. We're just, I don't think any side is there yet, you know, you, you, but it, like you have to start, it's like the power of one. You have to start with yourself, right? Yeah. I have to start with myself. Yeah. Are you there? Do you, how, how, how well are you doing? <laughs> well, it's in the beginning I was drunk every night. <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, I'm a mom. I got to be a, I got to go to school. I got to work." Um Honey. No. <laughs> hold, hold mommy's hair. Mommy doesn't feel good. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, it's it's hard because I live in a community where most people voted for Trump in my community. Where do you I have live? friends in Santa Clarita. Oh, you, you know? still live there? Yeah, I still live there. I oh. moved back there. I've lived around the world, but I came back there. Um, and one is once my son, my son is, was born disabled. So, you know, taking care of him, you know, I had to make changes. I couldn't work, you know, a typical law job and, and we had to make sacrifices and, you know, and just sort of restarting life. But I find myself there, but I think I'm there for a reason. And it's helped me to see that, you know, the humanity and other people that don't agree with me, like it would be easy for me to yell at people right now and be angry, but you can't when they're 
you know, in your life. Yeah. You know, and you still have to try to be kind. And you know that for them, you know, for me seeing them and seeing them move and the things they say, not all of them, but like 70% of them think that they did the best job by voting for Trump, the best job that they had. Yeah. And it breaks my heart because I know that they're wrong. <laughs> but, you know, they really, they, you know, they really believe that. So how do we connect as, as human beings? I was recently taking, listening to this lecture. It was a guy who was talking about writing about prisoners of war. And he said that the way that the prisoners survive these prisoners is that they try to connect on a human, get a human connection with the, their captors, the people who are guarding them. They try to look in their eyes and appeal to their humanity. And in that same way, not that it's a posture of, you know, submission or anything like that, like I'm, but there is something that even when we're on the other side, we can still connect with other people. And I think we have to find that. Yeah. And I think the solution is there because, and I'm, and I'm not saying that's everybody, you know, there are bad people, there are racist people, but there are some people who really genuinely feel like they've made the best decision. So now what? Well, and it, in all fairness uh, to the country. Uh, it also elected a black man to be president in 2008 and 2012. Right. So somehow that happened, <laughs> right. you know, you know something, but you know, maybe I'm too optimistic, but I think there's no choice. I think we have strategically, we have no, I mean, obviously there's resistance and there's, and there's all that, but I don't know if that's the world I want to live in either. Yeah. I have children here. It's tough, you know. So I don't know what the I don't know what the answer is. I am a resistor, but I think that we have to find a solution and we have to come to the table eventually. I'm not saying that's this year, next year. Maybe it's just speaking with our ballots at the next election. I well, I think know. we got. I mean, like you say, it's it's from the bottom up, not from the top down. That's right. It's about organizing. It's about nonviolent um, civil disobedience and protest where yes. it's called for, and then it's about showing up and being politically engaged. It, Yes, you know, because so many people aren't, and like, mm -hmm. this is what frustrates me so much about people who have like really strong political, you know, political convictions, and yet read very little about politics or history, mm -hmm. don't really follow it. But then an election season comes up, and suddenly it's like all of these convictions. It makes no sense to me. No, nope. if I were somebody who was totally disengaged, like like for example, like I'm totally disengaged from professional hockey. If you're a huge hockey fan right. and I'm going to the casino to bet on hockey, I'm listening to you. Right. You know, right. but like for some reason, people in politics, they suddenly know everything, mm -hmm. even when they know nothing. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It was never meant for everybody to vote. That's not how America was started. You had to be a landowner. There's a lot of rules about voting, but now we all have this chance and we think we're equally as prepared as the next person for no reason. It's not based on anything, yeah. but emotion. And we're just going for it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like, I mean, just as like, a, a, I can sometimes entertain that. It's like, wow, you know, like maybe there should be, uh, you know, people like a pass a civics test, you know? <laughs> but you can't put that on there. No, there, it would be especially as a black person. Yeah. I can't, we've done that. They've right. tried to do that to us. I don't know. And then you have classism and everything else that not just, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what that, I don't know. We just got to keep talking. Yeah. We got to keep talking and we, and we have to, we got to spread out. If we're a team, you know, everybody can't play first base. Everybody can't play, you know, we have to play the positions. As far as I'm concerned as a Christian, I feel like God has placed everybody in a position for a reason. Like you're there for a reason. But if you're going out to protest one day and then you go home or in your office and you're cursing everybody out and being hateful, you're not, 
you're not you may not be playing your position like you're supposed to. Like I can't run from left field to first base and expect to get the guy out. I'm not going to be. And sometimes all of us are on the same base. You know, yeah. all of our effort is that protest. And now we won't do anything at home that would actually make a difference or at our workplace or wherever we are that would, you know, build connection because I believe in human connections and we're not doing that. Well, and if you're just shouting at each other, that it's not going to, you know, it's not going to work. No one's listening. No. But I don't have answers. I just know that that's base one. That's the ground floor. And you've got, you say you're Christian. Like, what kind of Christianity are you into? Um, just, I guess, regular. I don't know. Just regular. Just regular. <laughs> Unleaded. Um, evangelical. I don't know. I'm on the Christian left, I guess you could say, when they say the liberal Christian, you know. Which is, by, Which by the I way. believe is Jesus. He represents, you know, love your neighbor as yourself and all that other stuff. I think it's, and we're not, and people who say that they're Christians are not doing that. They just point out the Bible and that could be anywhere, you know, is it the part where they, where God kills everyone or is yeah. it the Jesus that you follow, the Christ part of Christian? I don't really understand because my understanding is not what's happening. We should at least be there treating the problem. We should be at the airports helping refugees. We should be, but we're not. We're, I don't really understand it. Yeah. Are, now, were you raised this way? Or is this something you came to in your adult life? Um, I, was, I was Buddhist for, you know, my family. Well, actually, no, that's not true. We were Methodist in Alabama. We started one of the, my family on my mother's side started the first AME church in that small town, East Tallahassee, Alabama. Hmm. And then we moved away. But when we came to California, we became Buddhist. So I was Buddhist for several years. By the way, this is maybe the first time I've ever talked to somebody who went from being Buddhist to being Christian. <laughs> I'm a, I was raised Catholic and I'm Buddhist. <laughs> Buddhist. Yeah. I don't mean, I've, never, I've never been to a Buddhist temple in my life. But, you know, like I, that makes more sense to me than the Catholicism I was raised with. But you went the other way. Yeah, I went the other way. What, what happened? Just, I, you know, it just made sense to me. Like I was, I just knew, I don't know. It's a knowing it's a, for me, my experience was, it was a knowing. Did it you was, have like a crisis in your life and it got you out of it or was it? No, I just, I stopped going anywhere. I didn't go to church. I didn't do anything for a long time. So through, I went to a Christian law school and I was the rebel and I was like, this is some bullshit right here, <laughs> right? That was me in law school. But it was, you know, it made sense. I was working full time, going to law school at night. It was the local law school. So it wasn't intentional, you know, that I was there. Um, and then I just didn't go anywhere. I met my husband who's not, who didn't believe in anything. He was like, there's probably a God. I don't know. Yeah. And then. Sounds like me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And then one day I was like, I need to take my daughter. She was five. And I said, I have to, I want to take her to church or somewhere so she could start building a spiritual life, whatever that means, you know, spiritual. Yeah. Um, and I took her to church because I saw a girl, it was on Facebook. So I stopped going. So I went to a Christian church for a little while when I was in high school. And then this girl who was pregnant, you know, they, they just sort of jumped on her and treated, mistreated her. I was like, I'm never going to church again. Yeah. And then she ended up, um, her daughter had a daughter and was on, in, was on Facebook and she was pregnant and she was singing in the choir. And I was like, what kind of church is that? That's where I want to take my daughter. So I took my daughter Ava and then I was like, I'll just come one time. And then I went back the next week. I was like, well, I have to watch her. I don't know these weirdos. Yeah. And then I started listening and it just, I just knew. 
It was just annoying. Drank the Kool Aid. I drank the Kool Aid. It was so good. It was grape. It was. <laughs> no, like I had this conversation. I was texting with a friend last night, and uh, we were talking about um, mental health, depression, dealing with just the stuff of life. Mm-hmm. And then as like got into like the spiritual stuff, it's like having something. It's it's very hard to talk about, you know, like spiritual stuff. But right, right. having that component of life. It feels to me uh, essential, like to have yeah. something. Like I don't care what it is, and mm-hmm. hopefully it's something that's not like super dogmatic or judgmental. Mm-hmm. You know, I prefer. Mm-hmm. I think the world needs less of that. Yeah, I agree. But um, I think absent that, life feels pretty bleak, especially when you get into the existential stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And I yeah, guess maybe no, have, having you... kids too, because like, you know, it's it's one thing to be like to have nothing when you don't have children, but then like your daughter's three and she's like, what is God? (laughs) (laughs) What happens when you die? And you're like, like, Oh shit. Like, you know, I mean, you try to be honest. I just, I kind of just say, well, God is everything. It's all this (laughs) as opposed to nothing. Um, You know, it just seems like a little bit of a happier answer without me trying to get into too much magical thinking. Like, it's very difficult as a parent. Yeah, but it makes sense to me that there's, there's mind, body, spirit. I just believe that. And, and I think a moment that I really knew, I mean, I've, I've been pretty sure since I've, you know, become a Christian, but seeing my son who was disabled, you know, he wasn't expected to walk or run or anything like that. He walked when he was four, just over four. Um, he ran when he was six. So, was, you know, it's not really a real run. It's sort of he moves his upper body like he's running, but his feet kind of scoot along. But, And I remember being in church and they were playing music and he just jumped out of his seat. It was like a worship song. And he just starts jumping up and down and he was so happy. He was like so happy and so moved by whatever happened. And I remember a woman said, she, who was also touched, like we were all shocked because he was like catching air, which is like a developmental step. You, unless yeah. you have somebody who's disabled, you don't really know. My, my son actually is uh, struggling with some disability, like yeah. physical motor delays and yeah. stuff. Yeah. So when he was, so when he was like catching air, so you know, like that's a step. Like yeah. they catch air, they jump high enough. And so when he was doing that, and then this woman who is from Colombia, she says, you know, she said our spirits aren't disabled. His body may be, but our spirits are not. Right. And it made sense to me. And I see him, and he's always like that. When the music comes on, it's like he's awake. He's, and I know. It's just a knowing. Is it that music, or could it be any music? Uh, it's mostly Christian music. Yeah. If it has Jesus, he tried, he he only has 17 words. He's 10 years old now. He just learned no. So that's like, wow. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, most kids, they get that at like one or whenever they start talking, but it's, he's just learning the word no and wow. oh no. So he's really bossy. No. Do you want that? No. And I'm like, how yeah. do you know? This is strange. It's been 10 years Don't of life with you. Don't you talk back you. to your mother. <laughs> I know. But I'm happy to yeah. you say no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. So, and, um, you mentioned earlier that you did some traveling and you lived every, you know, you lived all over the world, you said? Well, yeah. I mean, various places. Yeah. I want to make sure I get to that because, you know, Santa Clarita, West <laughs> Adams, but that seems like an interesting facet of your life. Like you've been where? Yeah. So, well, I lived in London for a while and I lived in China for a very brief time. I thought, you know, that was my quest. I was, at the time, I was making a lot of money as an attorney in San Francisco living in like the penthouse level overlooking the Bay Bridge and the Golden Gate Bridge. I could see both. And I remember it was the year of 
protest, protest of the Iraq war. It was no war for oil. And they were all marching up Market Street. And at that time, I was, you know, my whole concern was money, was me. I used to have Jones Soda. I love Jones Soda. So I used to order it and have it, like, brought up in this golden trolley to my part. Like, the bellman would bring it up. I had people park in my cars. It was, like, it was crazy. I was young, a lot of money. But then I remember looking down and seeing them with their signs and just thousands of people thinking, what am I doing? It was like an awakening moment, and it sort of began what I was going to do next. Like it just changed drinking a soda, looking drinking, down. So look, <laughs> drinking my Jones soda, my apple, you know, and it was like, but then you see this, and I was just like, what am I Because I, I became a lawyer because I was thrown out of a courtroom. You know, I was in radio, and just an intern at a radio station going to college, and a friend of mine who was beat up by her then-boyfriend was she was trying to get a restraining order and he had a lawyer and his lawyer was out of control and yelling at her and she was crying. She couldn't get her words out. And I was just there for moral support. I was like in my club clothes, you know, it was the best outfit I had. <laughs> it was my short skirt. But I'm like, <laughs> but I, I remember, and I stood up and I was like, no, this is what happened, your honor. You know, and I was just all rolling my neck, pointing my finger, you know, all that. <laughs> and his attorney was like, your honor, if she, if she speaks again, you have to, you know, you have to kick her out of the courtroom. And I was like, okay, I'll sit down. So I sat down and then it happened again. And I was like, oh no, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so then after the second or third time I got kicked out and I remember turning around in all drama, it was all dramatic, you know, just out of control. I was like, you know what? I'll never be this powerless again in a courtroom, hmm. you know? And I won't, I wasn't going to be to help the people that I love. And then six months later, I was in law school. Wow. So it wasn't like I went from communications, like this is my way to law school. I just, it happened in that moment. So then fast forward, you know, four or five years later, and I'm looking down on this crowd of people doing the thing that I, that I said that I had pledged to do that day. I felt like distant. And so I said, I'm going to just travel. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to work at a nonprofit. I thought that was going to be my path. And um, and I ended up going to China because I was like, I'm going to start by bringing in Chinese New Year with real Chinese people in China. So I flew. I just like booked a flight because I had that kind of I could do that. Booked a flight, went to China, brought in Chinese New Year and I hiked up this mountain. And I was like, I could live here. And there's like a McDonald's there. It wasn't even like I thought it was a Mecca. For me, it was like, <laughs> I'm going on this this journey. And I was like, why is there a McDonald's right here? I'm like, <laughs> Because um, there's McDonald's everywhere. I know, I know. And I'm trying to speak to them because, you know, numbers are the same in every language. So I'm like, I want a number one because it's, <laughs> it's a Big Mac meal in every McDonald's in every country. So I'm like holding up one finger, like one. And then what? You stayed for how long? I stayed for another couple of years. I worked in... In China? Oh, no. In China, I stayed for just like a week. I've, yeah, that was a mess. And then I came... <laughs> I mean, as you guys, like all of it was a mess. And then I came back and then I was still with the same company. And then I worked for a nonprofit with home, homeless people, finding housing and preparing housing for homeless people. And then I was doing art projects with them. And then I was like, ah. and then I met my husband because my next trip was to London. I met him. And then that was in London. Yeah. In London. Oh, British guy. Yeah. Oh, look at I, you. And then you brought him back over to the States. Yeah. And he's now. He's now mine. I got an English guy. You got an English. 
Your kids speak with like a British accent or anything? No. 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 My husband does. I'm like, say burrito to me. He's like, burrito. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's silly, but yeah. And so how long were you in London? Uh, for three years. Three about years. Three years. You're yeah. working over there. Working over there as an attorney. and You can get work as an attorney? Like, well, I worked for different companies. So I worked with, you know, so I did all of their compliance and their sort of in-house work. Um, and then I started a nonprofit working with South Asian children that were there, you know, doing art and writing projects. Um, and then I got an award from the queen, the millennium prize for like community service. You meet the queen? No, I didn't meet her. Oh. I didn't, but I got like 5,000 pound and a oh. pat on the back. I was like, I'm rich. I'm rich. You got you know? 5,000 pounds from the queen. <laughs> I know. Right. Right out of her account. <laughs> I know. <laughs> But yeah, and then, but my life just became service, you know, after I went to London and... Wait, so when you were in London, did you, uh, when when did you uh, get with Jesus? Was that when you got back? That was when I got back. Oh. So I wasn't with Jesus. I was serving. But you were serving. (laughs) Yeah, I was serving, you know, because I believe that's just, that's who I am too. And then when I came back, I worked in um, healthcare for community um, clinics um, Girl Scouts, things like that, that I thought You're a was... good person. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it makes sense to, you know? Yeah, not to everybody, it though. Sense. It should. It should. We're all on this spaceship together, right? That's right. That's right. You know? So did any of the Buddhism stick, or is that just lost? It's lost. It's I lost. don't remember any of it. I don't... I mean, I, I, I recognize, like, the meditations. Um, but people tell me that, you know... I don't know. I that don't was know. your high school rebellion? Like, I'm not listening to the sutras, Dad. I know. <laughs> I'm not doing it. I'm not. I don't believe in See, anything. See, that's, that's what I'm worried about, though, because it's like, I feel like no matter what you tell your kids, most likely they're going to rebel against it, at least for mm-hmm. a certain phase of their lives. You think? Yeah. I don't know. But you got to show them but something. But they come back to it. Maybe. They come back to it. I never it. came I back come to back. it. You didn't come back to the, oh, Catholicism. No. Hmm. I was never with it, though. It just never clicked with me. Right. But yeah. you're Buddhist now. I'm Buddhist. Yeah. I'm a nice person. Yeah, you're a nice person. You I got wanna, it. I want to do the right thing. Look at this. Look at this podcast. <laughs> you're like, you're doing it. You're like... <laughs> well, listen, I, uh, I've had such a nice time talking with you and, um, I'm really impressed with all that you've got going on. You know, like, uh, being a lawyer, writing novel, raising children, including a child with special needs. That's extra work. Yeah. Um, that requires a lot. So kudos to you for getting it all done. I don't know how you do it. Oh, thank you. And you have a special needs son as well. Yeah. So I understand it. And I know what this means for you to even be in this room right now. And every guest that you've had here, that's a sacrifice. Yeah. Well, you know, he had me up last night from 2.30 until 6.30. Right. They don't sleep. I know. Little known secret about special needs <laughs> children. <laughs> like, it's shit. like an infant their whole life it's like uh, uh, under six months old their whole life oh i know God. i know so uh i wish you the best on this new book thank you writing it in fits and starts on your iphone is that the way it's going <laughs> what yeah i still write in bits and pieces mm. well uh i look forward to it when's it going to be done do you know i don't know no, i don't know hopefully it's not seven years <laughs> <laughs> i'm hoping for like you know a year or two i don't know okay. i don't know and then it's two years after that well it's nice to meet you Yeah, it's nice to meet you, too. Thank you so much for having me. All right, everybody. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope you'll consider supporting it. You can do that over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Make a donation. Keep this thing going. Your support 
is instrumental in uh, this podcast continuing to exist. You can also support the show by writing a review over at iTunes. That helps new listeners find the show, raises the show's ranking and whatnot. So if you have a couple of minutes, go to iTunes, write a review of the program. That was Natasha Dion. Her debut novel is called Grace, available now from Counterpoint Press. You can find Natasha online at natashadion.com. She's on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Natasha Dion. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Be sure to, uh, to check out killrockstars.com. This podcast has its own app. It's a, it's a free app. It's called the Other People with Brad Listy app. Have you heard of it? Have you, have you seen this app around town? The Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Get it wherever you get your apps. It's the best and most elegant way to listen to this program. Take it with you wherever you go. Episodes available at your fingertips. Incredibly user-friendly. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. There are mountain lions in Los Angeles. There was an uh, article in The New Yorker recently by Dana Goodyear all about this. You think I'm crazy. They're attacking alpacas. I had to run out last night and get balloons. My daughter wanted Valentine's Day balloons. I got balloons. Big helium balloon. It's like $15. For a balloon. What a racket Valentine's Day is. How much money is spent on Valentine's Day on $15 balloons? gonna be a balloon maker make some balloons it's a beautiful day maybe I should go outside get some fresh air go for a hike in the mountains perhaps encounter a lion be eaten alive what a way to go attacked by a, a wild animal fuck that man I wrote something about this once years ago. There was a, uh, you guys hear that? Uh, that's my elbow like squeaking on the table watch. Um, anyway, I was uh, living in Colorado back then. There are a lot of mountain lions in Colorado. And, uh, I lived in Boulder and there was a story in the news about a mountain lion in Boulder who had jumped into somebody's backyard, crawled into their, like, through the, into their house, through the doggy door, ate an entire bag of cat food, and then ate a 15-year-old, or something like that, you know, very old cat, named Mun- Mungit, Mungit, M-U-N-G-I-T. And then, uh, after gorging itself, the lion went out into the, uh, backyard, and just hung out. It was then, uh, I think they killed it. I don't know what they did. They either, uh, you know, tranquilized it or whatever, but 
I was I was interested in this story, particularly uh, from you know for the purposes of uh, point of view. Like, what would it be like to be that cat? You're 15 years old. You've lived your whole life. You've lived a good life, a domestic life. Then one day you hear a noise, and there's a fucking mountain lion in the living room, looking at you. <laughs> 